Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to What That Aged Well. And this week we're going to talk about the crimes of Stalin committed under his reign of terror from 1924 until 1953. And we have with us today Joshua Rubenstein, who has written The Last Days of Stalin, which of course we're going to discuss at the end of the episode. Now this is not a biographical episode of Stalin, so we're not going to talk everything that happened inside, but we're going to talk about the atrocities committed under his regime. And I want to understand how Stalin became this tyrant that history now in mass. I want to begin at the... Is there any part of his early childhood or if, before he became a dictator that can help us understand why did he become this tyrant that he ended up being? Yes, Stalin was born in 1878 in um, Gori, which is a small village in in Russian Georgia, in the Caucasus. And he was the only child to a cobbler and his wife. And uh, apparently Stalin's father was very brutal and a drunk uh, who abused his wife, we're told. Um, And the mother, of course, idealized her son and wanted him to become a priest. And Stalin actually studied for the in a seminary in secondary school uh, when he was a teenager. <clears throat> but he lost interest in that. And like many people in the Russian Empire, he was drawn to the revolutionary cause. Um, and he eventually, you know, in his 20s and 30s, became very active in Lenin's party, the Bolshevik party. He attended conferences. He met Lenin, he met Trotsky. And um, he was eventually arrested like many of these uh, revolutionaries and spent many years in Siberia, very lonely, difficult years. And then after the February revolution, when the Tsar abdicated and the provisional government took power, all the revolutionaries who had been exiled, either internal exile in Siberia, like Stalin, or in Western Europe, like Lenin, or Trotsky was in North America. He was in New York when the Tsar abdicated. They all were able, they were all free to return to Russia because the provisional government was a democratic government and honored civil liberties. So these revolutionaries were welcomed back to the country. And of course, the country was in complete upheaval. You had the war, you had people fed up with the war, you had a lot of desertion on the part of soldiers. 
<clears throat> you had peasants taking over land from wealthy landowners. So it was in the midst of a political and the social revolution. And the provisional government simply did not have the wherewithal, it did not have the power, the strength, the authority to deal with all these problems. And the Bolsheviks were a minority among the revolutionary parties. The socialist revolutionaries had much more support, but Lenin was very determined. And together with Trotsky, they plotted how they could overthrow the provisional government. Stalin was part of it, but Lenin and Trotsky really played the major role. And as we know, they mounted a coup d'etat, a military coup d'etat, really, against the provisional government and took power that October in 2017, which in, in our calendar is November. But that's why it's called the October Revolution, because under the Russian calendar at the time, it took place on October 25th, not November 7th. Is there a sign already in the, at this stage of the, of the dark side of, of the tyrant Stalin? Well, that's very hard to say because keep in mind, he had no political power. Uh, he was part of a large group, of, of a group of revolutionaries. He was part of Lenin's inner circle. But he did not really exert uh, much political authority, and he was not seen as a very effective commander of troops during the Russian Civil War. Trotsky was the leading figure. Trotsky created the Red Army and had Lenin's full backing. But Stalin was a very adept political maneuverer. And when um, Lenin collapsed of a stroke uh, in 1922, was Stalin, who is the general secretary of the party, he was the leading bureaucrat within the party. He was not widely known within the country the way Trotsky was, the way Lenin was. But he was a very adept political strategist, much better than Trotsky, curiously, who was a very brilliant man. And so Stalin outmaneuvered him. But still, there was no violence involved. It is, it, it is of course, I should mention that the, the red, red debate that Trotsky where to be the head of state, but it was because it was Jewish. It was even he himself realized that because of my heritage, which he didn't he didn't really care about being a Jew and Jewish ancestry himself, but he realized that the Russian people would not accept him as a leader. But it was talk about Trotsky being a real, and it's kind of a crime in itself how Stalin came to power because he, it's my understanding, it changed the. The, the testament, so to speak, the, the will of Lenin, if it's my understanding. Yeah, then, well, that's not clear. Um, Lenin wrote a testament, it's a very famous document, where he listed the five or six men, they're all men, who might be considered to succeed him. And he mentioned some strengths of each one, some problems, some weaknesses, and he did not endorse either Trotsky or Stalin, even though he recognized that they were the two most accomplished of his colleagues, of his, uh, you know, other members of the Politburo. Stalin suppressed the testament. He didn't rewrite it. He suppressed it because it did not make him look good. 
And Lenin was actually very angry with Stalin in the last months of his life because of the way Stalin treated Lenin's wife, uh, uh, Krupskaya, um, and some other ways in which Stalin behaved in a very crude and uh, unacceptable manner in Lenin's eyes. So, um, but nonetheless, when, when Lenin died in January of 1924, Trotsky was out of Moscow. He was several hundred miles away, and he did not return to the city for the funeral. And this was also a very strategic mistake by Trotsky's part, because he could have exerted his authority, but he wasn't there. And we believe that Stalin misled him about the timing of the funeral, but certainly Trotsky had other means to figure this out. So that also made it more difficult for Trotsky to assert himself. He would have been happy to be crowned the leader, to accept that position, but he didn't know how to campaign for it effectively against Stalin. So, of course, as we now know, Stalin would end up as the head of state of Russia for all the way until 1953. But does it already become the tyrant at this early reign? Or is it more careful in the yes. early years? Well, obviously, he had, as we say in English, he had to play his cards carefully. Because, you know, coming out of the revolution, they were all very determined uh, men, uh, accustomed to use violence arguing with each other over ideological issues. But Lenin, although Lenin could debate very vigorously and with a great deal of anger, he accepted the fact that within the party there were these debates, um, including with people um, who disagreed with him violently. But Stalin did not, was, that's not how Stalin worked. Stalin always remembered who had opposed him. And eventually, of course, he took his revenge, not only on Trotsky, but on Kamenev and Zinoviev and other very accomplished revolutionaries who were seen, Stalin saw as a threat to his power. So as the 1920s went on, Stalin became more and more um, not prone to violence because it was still early, but into really controlling more and more of the levers of power until he was ready to purge his opponents. Mm. So let's talk about the first kind of crime, which is what was, of course, exposing Trotsky from Russian exile and him to what well, first would go to Turkey and then, of course, end up in Mexico. So, so let's talk about how. Was Trotsky still a day? Because he was in government until 1929, which is quite a long time. But no, he wasn't. Was Trotsky... no, he wasn't. no, no. Trotsky really only had power, mm. really the exercise of power for a very brief time between 1917, when the Bolsheviks took over, until 1922, when Lenin had his collapse. Even though Trotsky was formerly head of the Red Army, he was losing his authority to Stalin. And he was very famous. He was perhaps the second most widely known figure in Russia at that time after Lenin. But in fact, he was losing political influence 
and political power. Mm. So he really only exercised political power for four or five years, and that's all. Mm. So I want to begin with one of the, though he may not be an architect, of course, he is partly part responsible for the dual life system. So let's talk about the establishing the dual life system in Soviet Russia. What do you mean establishing the... Uh, the, uh, the how Stalin used the dual life system to, and how he would... Because, of course, the dual life system did already kind of exist under the Tsarist Russia, but it still... It, it took off kind of under Stalin, didn't it? That it, he was the one who really sent... He did, people began be sent en masse to the dual life system under oh, the, the dual Stalin. Oh, the yes. yes. <clears throat> Obviously, the Tsar had established a whole network of camps of Siberian exile. All that was very famous. Dostoevsky was exiled. <clears throat> um, so that was a very extensive system of punishment. But the Bolsheviks expanded that a great deal. And the first concentration camp was set up under Lenin on Solovki, the islands of Solovki in the far north. And then, of course, Stalin set up a whole gulag system of forced labor, which very much dwarfed the uh, labor camp system uh, under the Tsar. It was much more, more strict, much larger, and a big part of the economy. At least they hoped it would be part of the economy. It was actually a waste. But uh, the Gulag system by the 1930s involved millions of people in the mines, in the forests, uh, laying railroad tracks, even in the, in the cities. And then, well, yes, there was a building of one, the White Sea Canal. Even in the cities, Solzhenitsyn worked on a building in Moscow. People, when I was in Moscow, people would point it out to me when I'd be driving along. I said, look at that building. Solzhenitsyn worked in that building as a political prisoner, you know, laying tile or whatever he was doing. So, so and of course, yes, I wanted to talk. I want to talk a little bit as well about filling the quota because there had to be a quota filled. Quota and then what would become the NKVD that they had a job to fill the quota to fill the duelage because they were lacking. People and of course a lot of polls. It's my understanding. I believe him. Please neither speak right more slowly. Please speak more I do, slowly. Yeah, I, I do believe that Timothy Snyder writes in his book on the, the Bloodlands that there are polls, innocent polls, that supposedly were committed crimes against the state that were sent to these large systems in this understanding that were brutally taken away by yes, the there were whole, there were whole there were whole categories of people. During the Great Purge between 1936 and 1938, hundreds of thousands of Poles <clears throat> who were living in Russia were arrested and executed, summarily executed. So that is also one of the one of the great crimes during the Purge era. And what I want to talk next, but because when we talk about the thirties, of course, one of the most biggest, of course, and happening in the Ukraine is, of course, Holodomor, which is one of the most tra tragic and what is most in, in more in probably insane part is that Stalin believed that the Holodomor wasn't created 
against the Soviet system that the Ukrainians start themselves as a protest against. So let's talk a little bit about Holodomor and how the devastating yes. effects in Ukraine. Well, it begins with collect forced collectivization. Um, Stalin was embarking in 1929 with a campaign of accelerated industrialization. But the vast majority of people living in Russia were peasants living in these small farm on small farms. And Stalin needed to, from his point of view, force them to collectivize, to join together into much larger farms. And the idea was these would be more efficient. And then the peasants would be forced to find work in the cities where Stalin needed them to create fact to build factories and electric power stations and other industrial projects. So forced collectivization was not just to force the peasants into these big farms, but to compel them by economic coercion to come to the big cities to build an industrial base, both for, for industrial progress and for military purposes. So the Holodomor, the, the terrible famine that overtook Ukraine, was result of collectivization. Now, collectivization took 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 place around the, everywhere, but in Ukraine it was particularly brutal, because grain was uh, was confiscated by Soviet secret police. People were forced off their their own small holdings, their own small farms, into collective farms, and there wasn't enough food because it was being confiscated. And so there is a growing famine in 1932 and 1933. We now believe that maybe four or five million Ukrainians died. And many people died in the North, in North Kazakhstan as well. There was another area where there was a great deal of famine. It was not only in Ukraine. There is some dispute among historians about whether Stalin deliberately brought the famine or once the famine started, he had no desire to help people. He isolated mm. Ukraine. He would not allow journalists in. He would not allow people to leave. So there'd be firsthand testimony about what was happening. But there is some dispute among historians over how the famine began. But there's no dispute over the uh, widespread uh, consequence of the famine and the Soviet government's responsibility for it. And I believe as well that people ate grain seed to survive, which would, of course, upset the stomach because when they not planted and it hasn't grown out, it will. People died eating grain seed because they were so well, desperate. They, it was cannibalism as well. There was cannibalism as well, of course. Yes, there was, unfortunately. And then were the two famines almost a few years after each other that there were almost, not immediate, but a few years between it, that there was not just one famine, but there was even another famine in Ukraine? I'm not familiar. There was the Holodomor between 1932 and 1933. That was the height of it. Um, I'm not familiar with the second round of famine. So another thing I want to talk about is NKVD and the Stalin and the brutal 
of course, which will later become KGB and the brutalization of KGB against their own citizens of the Soviet Union. Because we spoke before that it were a lot of people the Gulag system, and but they were they were also notoriously killed innocent people, and of course, on this population yes. of Poles. Well, keep in mind, Lenin and Trotsky established the Cheka, the mm. Soviet secret police, uh, during the uh, Russian Civil War, as a way to suppress any opposition to Bolshevik to the Bolshevik dictatorship. Now, of course, the Tsar had his own secret police, um, but Lenin was far. But Lenin's secret police, the Bolshevik secret police, was far more brutal, far more violent far more arbitrary in who it's targeted and the number of people it targeted. So it began as the Cheka. That's why we often call Russian secret police as Czechists from the word Cheka. But then it succeeded by the NKVD and then the KGB and now the FSB. But it's all the same organization. Hmm. And of course, the head was, of course, notorious as well. And that would be Beria, of course, the notorious NKVD chiefs. And I thought, but because he was equally, I believe, as brutal as Stalin himself. Yes, well, Beria became uh, head of the secret police in 1938, succeeding other secret police leaders who had been arrested and executed, like uh, Yagada and Yezhov. Who were equally brutal, uh, but Stalin, for whatever reason, tired of them, and and uh, it was not a job that came with a lot of security. Hmm. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, what in the, is interesting to me as well is that in the NKVD, a lot of because Stalin was a notorious anti-Semite as well, and it will we'll come back to you in a little bit, few seconds. But in the early NKVD, there were a lot of Jewish police officers that were, but of course, eventually he got rid of them as well. As a, so how come he had, had early on, but then decided to get rid of his Jewish NKVD well, officers? Keep in mind, um, the Jewish population under the Tsar faced many civic restrictions. And it was the provisional government that made all citizens equal before the law. It was the provisional government, not the Bolsheviks who granted civil rights to all Russian citizens, including Jews. Secondly, the Jews, by and large, were literate, and they were sympathetic to the revolution. And so the, the, the Bolsheviks needed people who were literate for their bureaucracy to run their industry and cultural institutions. So Jews actually flocked to the major cities like Leningrad, what be, Petersburg, and then Leningrad and Moscow, and became a very urban population. And in the 20s and 30s, from a cultural and social point of view, they did relatively well in the new Soviet system. But Stalin had always his, Stalin was always an anti-Semite, but he was not like Hitler. He could work with individual Jews. He worked with Lazar Koganovich, for example, for many, many years. And Koganovich was the last Jew at that level of power in, uh, in the Soviet system, in the Politburo, and then the Presidium in 1952, the name was changed. 
Um, and there are other Jews who work closely with Stalin. Um, so he was not that kind of pathological anti-Semite. His anti-Semitism grew much more after World War II, ironically, after the defeat of Nazi Germany, after the Red Army liberation of Majdanek and Auschwitz. Um, Stalin turned on the Jews um, as a result of Cold War tensions with America, the establishment of Israel. He wondered if in the Cold War the Jews would be loyal. In a war against Hitler, there was never any question that Jews would be loyal to Russia and mm -hmm. Stalin. But in a war against America, Stalin did not have the same confidence. Hmm. And speaking of World War II, this is, this is, I want to bring up World War II as well, because under World War II, and especially, of course, the siege of Stalingrad, there were, he had officers that, because retreat was not an option in the U.S.'s Red Army. And if you dared to try to reach, desert or retreat, they had officers shooting you down. So that you did not, or so let's talk a little bit about the soul, primal for soldiers well, in the Second World War. Obviously, the Red Army was in a desperate, desperate situation. And there are times in a war, in a battle, where you need to retreat for strategic reasons. Um, not out of cowardice, but just for obvious tactical or strategic reasons. Um, but Stalin was so determined that he created blocking troops. They were called blocking troops. And these troops are generally from the secret police, not from the regular army, who are behind the frontline soldiers, and they would shoot them if they were trying to retreat. That was their way of enforcing discipline in the face of German attacks. But of course, it resulted in many, many deaths of people who should have retreated for defense, perfectly legitimate defensive purposes. Mm. But this is one of the many self-defeating policies of the Stalin era. He didn't listen to his generals when he should have. So they lost millions of troops in those first months of the war after the German invasion in June of 1941. Uh, millions of Soviet soldiers died needlessly um, because of Stalin's failure to respond to the warnings about an imminent German attack that June. And another thing, I'm, I'm not quite sure how true this is, but there was I read somewhere in the book on, on the Second World War and under the under Soviet invasion. Now Stalin did not hesitate in using civilians as human shield because he did not think the Wehrmacht soldiers would shoot shoot down civilians. Is that true to this that he actually used civilians not, as human uh, shield? I've not heard that. I have not hmm. heard that. But of course, coming back to I don't want to talk a little bit more about the anti-Semitism of Stalin because his daughter Svetlana Stalin or Arne Vienna fell in love with a Jewish boy who was named Alexei Kapler and he would have a, of course a tragic end as well so it, it was not even safe for if you did not want to date Stalin's daughter let's put it let's put it that way uh, could you repeat your question so you know I want to talk a little bit about Alexei Kapler you know the Svetlana Stalin's boyfriend the daughter of Stalin Yes, they met in 1942 during the war, 
and um, she may he may have been her only real true love. She married several times afterwards, including to Grigory Marozov, another Jewish fellow. Um, and then when she defed, then she married uh, Zdanov's uh, one of Stalin's chief lieutenants, um, his son Andrei Zdanov. She Stalin was very happy with that marriage, but she was miserable with Zdanov. But she married, you know, the son of a prominent Bolshevik, a prominent communist. Um, and then when she defected, she defected. Uh, because she had married an Indian gentleman in Moscow and he died and she wanted to take his ashes to India and that's when she defected. And then in America, she married an American architect and that marriage didn't last. So she had a very unhappy romantic life. She did see Alexei Kapler later um, in the 1950s and they reconnected. They may have been lovers again. And he may have been her only true love. Uh, so in that sense, she had a tragic romantic life. Um, Kapler was a filmmaker and a journalist. Um, he was Jewish and her first, her husband, her first husband was Grigory Marozov, who was also Jewish, but that turned out not to be a happy marriage. Then Kapler ended up several years in the Jewish system as well. Yes, he was, uh, he was a prisoner. Yes, he was a prisoner for several years. Then he was released, and they met up in Moscow later. Hmm. And of course, I want to talk about the inner circle of Stalin as well, because if you were in the inner circle of Stalin, you were you actually thought you were safe. You would have to think again because. Even family of Stalin were not safe or being purged because it would didn't want didn't want people to think, hey, look at me. It's not it's not just me. It's my own family. This is happening too. So even people in the, so let's talk about the inner circle and how you were not really safe under the grip of Stalin. No, if you made all it. of Stalin's lieutenants, his closest collaborators, were always his potential victims, and they knew that until the Davis collapse on March 1st, 1953. They were always his potential victims, all of them. So and it must be, and again, to bring up his daughter as well, this is, it must be devastating for her when she realized that her best friend suddenly did not go to school anymore and she did not know why, that, oh, no, oh they just disappeared and because this, she had close friends with some of the kids going on, and even, like I said, her family members as well, when they disappeared, and she didn't know why they disappeared. It must have been quite traumatic experience. Yes. Uh, after her mother's death, her mother committed suicide in the early 1930s. <clears throat> Gradually, Stalin became suspicious of her mother's relatives, and so many of them were arrested. And of course, this was very traumatic for Svetlana when she came to realize her father had the authority to order people's arrest or death. And so she came to understand um, what he was like. Um, but, you know, she was still his daughter and she loved him. Mm. 
And I want to talk as well a little bit about because well, I know you want to talk about the death of Stalin. So let's talk about a little bit about because he wrote the book as I mentioned in the start, the last days of Stalin. So let's talk about the last days of Stalin. Yes. Stalin turned uh, officially 73. In fact, he was 74 um, in December 1952. And then on March 1st, suddenly he collapsed from a stroke. Now we know he had high blood pressure. There's reason to believe he'd had a, a one or two small heart attacks and perhaps some smaller strokes before. But on March 1st, he collapsed at his dacha, his uh, residence outside of Moscow. And the rule was that when he was in his quarters, his private quarters, even his guards could not come in unless he summoned them with a bell when he wanted tea or lunch or breakfast or the papers. So he collapsed and he, he was lost consciousness. He was paralyzed. He couldn't call for help. So we believe he simply lied in his own urine for many hours at the dacha until the guards grew so alarmed, they sent an old woman who had worked with Stalin as a maid for many years. They sent her in to see what was happening. And she found Stalin on the floor. She raised the alarm. But they did not call the doctors. They called Barry and others. And so in the end, the doctors were not summoned until the next morning on Monday, March 2nd. And the doctors understood immediately that Stalin was deathly ill, mm. that this was a terminal uh, incident, that he had a very severe stroke. Mm. Um, but the Politburo said, well, they were called the Presidium now. Keep him alive as long as you can. We need to arrange power. We need to divide power among us. Who'll be in charge of defense? Who'll be in charge of foreign affairs? Who'll be in charge of internal security and, and the border security? All these important positions. So the doctors were instructed to extend his life, prolong his life as long as they could. They could not deal with the stroke. Even Western medicine could not. There were no... We did not have the medicines we have today for high blood pressure. There was no surgery they could do. They even tried leeches. Can you imagine? To reduce the blood pressure, figuring, you know, that would be a, a traditional method. So if Stalin I may interrupt not... you for, for a second, you mentioned the doctors, but didn't Stalin as well get rid of almost all the good doctors at well, the time that didn't have health? Yes. Yes. In January, on January 13th, 1953, seven weeks before he died, um, Stalin accused doctors, mostly Jewish doctors, of using their medical expertise to attack Soviet leaders and murder them. And so this became called the doctor's plot. It was mostly accusations against Jews. And this caused tremendous unrest in the country, in the hospitals, in the clinics. Even a widespread fear that the Jews of the Soviet Union would be deported to the Far East. And many people from that generation to this day believe that this is what Stalin was planning. We have not found any single document to uh, confirm what 
what Stalin's ultimate plans were, but this was a widespread fear in the wake of the doctor's plot. So Stalin collapsed on March 1st. His own physician, his own personal physician was in jail. He was not Vinogradov, he was not Jewish, but he had been arrested in November of 1952 and was in chains. And other doctors who had treated Stalin were also in jail or worked in the Kremlin. So, but nobody could have saved Stalin in any event. So he died on Thursday evening, March 5th. The funeral took place on March 9th in Moscow. And immediately the new regime led by Beria and Malenkov and Molotov and Khrushchev, they were the most important figures and Beria, of course, they presented a united front, a, a, a united government as succeeder, as successors to Stalin. And they were ready. They immediately instituted some reforms. They released a million political, not political prisoners, criminals from the Gulag because they realized it was a wasteful system economically. They made gestures toward the West. They initiated peace talks over Korea that led to the armistice that summer. And within a month after Stalin's death, they publicly disavowed the doctor's plot. They publicly announced the doctors were innocent, that they'd been framed by two renegade intelligence officers. Not blame Stalin. The population would not have been ready to hear that Stalin was behind the plot. But nonetheless, they publicly announced that the doctors had been tortured into giving confessions. So it was a remarkable act of contrition on the part of a regime that never admitted mistakes, that never apologized for its crimes. So that was an extraordinary moment a month after Stalin's death, although they could not blame Stalin. I have to ask you, because there's a film, which is more or less a satire, the death of Stalin. And what did you, have you seen it? And if so, what, what is your it's thoughts a wonder, on the yes. movie? The movie, The Death of Stalin by Armando Iannucci is a wonderful satire about Stalin's death. If you know the real story, and I hope people, if you read my book, I think that's the real story. You'll see how Iannucci's film is grounded in what really happened. But two things to keep in mind. The movie is a satire. So it makes fun of Molotov and Malenkov and Khrushchev. They were not clowns. When you watch the movie, you think they're clowns. I assure you, they were not clowns. Now, I know that people seem to think that Khrushchev was kind of a clown. In, is my understanding kind of in real life as well. A lot of people thought, didn't think too highly of him. It's my understanding. Well, people make fun of Khrushchev because he, had, he was not well-educated. But he was a very intelligent man, and he instituted some real reforms in the Soviet Union in the 50s. Uh, but he was still a dictator, not a personal dictator. Uh, it was a dictatorship of which he was the leading figure, but he could not just order people to be arrested, order people killed. It wasn't a Stalinist-type dictatorship. In the Soviet Union, people refer to Stalin as a, the period of cannibalism, in the period of Khrushchev is vegetarianism. Mm. Mm. Now, I, I I want to go a little bit back to the Second World War as well, before, before we talk about Khrushchev's 
denunciation of Stalin because I want to talk about one of his sons. I don't do forgive me, I don't remember his name, but there is one that is captured by Nazi Germany and held in a concentration camp and of course hoping to get a deal out of this. But of course Stalin doesn't really care. If he's captured, he's no son of mine, it's my understanding. But so let's talk about the fate of the son and do forgive me, I don't remember his name at the present moment. Yeah, let's talk about him as well. His name is Yaakov, and he was the son of Stalin's first wife, who died of an illness many years ago, many years before. I and he was captured by the Germans. And of course, the Germans knew who he was, and some evidence that they offered uh, a deal, some kind of hostage exchange, but Stalin uh, would not accept that. And so Yaakov was actually killed in a prisoner of war camp by the Germans. It is rumored, I don't know if this is rumor or if, it's, if it, like you said, it was murdered by the Nazi soldiers, but it's my understanding that he threw himself the fence to get murdered. He purposely threw himself, tried to escape to get killed by the soldiers. Um, I, I, um, I, I can't clear that up right off the top of my head. I haven't looked at that in a long time. But he certainly died in a prisoner of war mm. camp. And he certainly, uh, Stalin would not exchange, um, would not engage in a hostage exchange for him. Speaking of, and, and, and again, I'm going to end this soon, but I want to talk a little bit about as well POWs under the Second World War, because if you were a Russian soldier and you were caught as a POW and you returned to Russia, you were not in for a good time. You were sent, no. you were a traitor to Russia as well under the Stalin regime. This is one of the great betrayals of the Stalin era. When the war ended, um, there were many, many hundreds of thousands of Russian POWs in German hands. And some of these men uh, had spent years uh, in German camps. Um, some had fought behind enemy lines before their capture. And when they were returned, they were imprisoned. They were not honored. They were not welcomed. And so they were betrayed because of Stalin's leadership during the war made them vulnerable to either being killed or captured. And then they were betrayed a second time when they returned to their homeland and were sent to Siberia, to the Gulag. And uh, it's very disturbing that Stalin would treat his own soldiers that way, as if they had done something wrong. It was his leadership that made them so vulnerable. Mm. They had done nothing wrong. They fought honorably. And they were captured. Um, and I want to ask as well, because to do a comparison to Putin's regime today, of course, we've seen uh, in during Wagner's time. I'm not sure how to, what it's. Please, yeah, Erlen, please, please. They were do for Jimmy. I broke up, so start again. Yeah, so do for Jimmy. So to do a comparison. To Putin's regime, at least I'm not sure to what extent this is going on at this current moment during the Ukrainian war. But in the early on, under the Wagner group, they were, as we've seen under the Second World War, 
they are still shooting retreating soldiers. Is this still going on under the Ukrainian war that retreating soldiers are shot to the death well, retreating Russian we, we soldiers? Do, right. There were incidents. There have been incidents, especially of the conscripts from prisons. People were told, well, you're a prisoner here for this crime or that crime. But if you come and fight uh, against Ukraine and you survive six months, nine months, then you'll be free of your sentence. And so when these prisoners were taken to the front and they were forced to go fight, if they retreated, they were shot. I'm hmm. not going to say that the ordinary conscripts uh, who are more or less properly trained face that kind of of blocking procedure. But yes, those who were prisoners who agreed to fight in exchange for their possible freedom, if they survived, they were forced to go forward. And they, in English, we call that cannon fodder. They were just immediately killed by Ukrainians or by Russian soldiers behind them. So that's a particularly ugly dimension uh, to how the Russians have been fighting in Ukraine. And it's crazy that it still seems like we're going back in Russia to the Stalinist regime with the Russian, and again, different regime, I don't remember his name, that recently was killed under the Putin regime. Let's face it, he was murdered under the Putin regime. That probably you mean Alexei Navalny? Yeah, and it's you know, crazy. You know, we're, we're talking today on February 16th, and just this morning it was announced that Navalny died in prison. Of course Putin's responsible for his death. Of course, Putin wanted him gone. How he was killed, how he died, we don't know. We may never know. But obviously, Putin is responsible. That goes without question. But does and that how, how do you feel? How do you feel about I this? Think, that we seem to be going back to the Stalinist era under Putin's regime. I'll tell you, I. It, it's. Of course, things are terrible in Russia today. The war in Ukraine, people being arrested for the slightest expression of dissent. But it's a lot easier for people to leave Russia. Under Stalin, you couldn't leave the country. And keep in mind, after the war in Ukraine began two years ago, it's just two years ago next week, people fled the country, young men and women, who wanted nothing to do with it. And if they were working in, um, in IT, they could take their laptops and go to Finland, go to go to Georgia, go to Lithuania and work. The way they had been working in Leningrad, Petersburg or Moscow or Tver or wherever. Mm. So people could leave. Secondly, religion is more or less free. The religions that are seen as traditional religions in the Russian context, Russian Orthodoxy, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, <laughs> these houses of worship are free. Um, so there's nothing like the Soviet era restrictions that we used to see. But obviously, Putin has no tolerance for dissent, no tolerance for any political opponents. He's not averse to using violence. But to compare it to Stalin, remember, Stalin was outright terror, outright mm. terror, and, and with millions of victims. Right now, Putin doesn't need to engage in outright terror. Mm. 
It's not arbitrary. If he arrests you, you really probably were an opponent. You probably were a critic. He's not arresting everyone from Poland, everyone who is a Finn or a Korean. So it's not as arbitrary as what you saw under Stalin. That doesn't excuse Putin. I'm sure he may even be capable of it, but it's not necessary from his point of view. Do you think he's going as we see the, the people who did his beginning? Do you think he will ever go to the land that Stalin will Stalin did? You know, it's hard. It would be a nightmare if he were tried to institute a full-blown dictatorship of terror that we saw under Stalin. It would have economic consequences that he probably could not that the country could not tolerate. Remember Russia, okay, because of the war, Russia is being sanctioned by Western countries, but China and India are helping to prop it up through their trade, which Germany and France won't do now, and the US won't do. I'm, I'm sorry for derailing a little bit, but I want to end this episode with, of course, Khrushchev's Denunciation, because as we know that it's uh, in 1956, Khrushchev's speech, the, where he denounced the crimes of Stalin, and it's uh, it's interesting how a lot of people, as you mentioned earlier, how people weren't ready to realize that Stalin was the man behind us. Still in 1956, it seems that a lot of people resented that. Oh no, this this should not be something Stalin did. So right. what's the, what's the general reaction? Well, first, first, it was, quote unquote, a secret speech. The speech was not read over the radio. The text of the speech was read to party leaders, to party members, but it was not published in Pravda. Uh, there was no television yet. So it was not widely known, but people understood that something had changed because not only did Khrushchev give this speech to party leaders of the 20th Party Congress in February 1956, but the Soviet press began to publish articles about the fate of military commanders who'd been killed. And they began to publish poetry that had been banned and stories that had been banned by authors who had died under Stalin, like Osip Mandelstam, Isaac Babel, Marina Tsvetaeva, uh, who had committed suicide. Uh, in 1941. Um, Mandelstam died in the Gulag, Babel was executed in 1938, I'm, I'm sorry, 1940. Um, so the, the, the press began to report about famous victims, in particular military commanders, because that was inexcusable. On the eve of World War II, Stalin killed as many as 30,000 officers, which contributed to the weakening of the Red Army and his vulnerability in front of the Wehrmacht. So that was something that the party was uh, felt comfortable uh, reporting on. And if, if I may, we, we made an, in, in the summer, we made an episode on the Second World War where, uh, where we spoke about how Stalin would do things for Hitler that they would never do for his ally, that they, he would never imagine that his dear friend Hitler would attack the Soviet Union. Now it's kind of written in yes. the 
Mein Kampf that Bolshevik was the enemy that they needed to be exterminated. It was of course, kind of right Stalin, there. Stalin, Stalin made a grave miscalculation. He was warned by Churchill, by his own spies, that an invasion was imminent. In June of 1941, Solzhenitsyn writes that Stalin only trusted one man, Hitler, and Hitler betrayed him. Mm. Erlen, we've been speaking for an hour. I really yeah. need to get back to my work. Yeah, I I am going to run up there. And of course, before you go, do you have any social media or anywhere people might find you? Or of course, where can people find your book if they are interested in reading well, my The Last Days of Stalin? Is the last, this is the English language paperback, of course, if you can see it. And mm -hmm. uh, if you don't mind, uh, later on today, I'll send you an email with a a photograph of all the editions, Ukrainian, Russian, French, Hebrew, Hungarian, yeah. Greek, Czech, but none in a Scandinavian country. Mm. Maybe one day. But thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Erwin. All the best to you. Thank you. And if we are, this has been with that age as well. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts, Please write a review. That will help us out a lot. If you are on Spotify, consider giving us five stars. That would be very nice. Please like, share, and subscribe. I hope you liked this episode. Please check us some other stuff that we have made. I'm sure you're going to find something you like. This has been Wadatish Well, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.